This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Prior to the particular Baptist even existing, you have a very strong law-gospel distinction from Luther onward. This controls many people's understanding of the covenants. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master. I'm joined here, as always, with my friend and co-host, James Dolezal. James, good to see you. Good to see you, Jonathan. And we are delighted to have as our guest today, Sam Renahan. He is a minister at Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada, California. He has a PhD from the Free University of of Amsterdam, degree from Westminster, California. And uh, Sam has written a number of very helpful things. And the most recent book, and the one that's kind of the jumping off point for our uh, discussion today, is a fairly technical volume of historical theology called From Shadow to Substance, The Federal Theology of the English Particular Baptist from 1642 to 1704. Now, before you turn off your podcast, uh, we we think that actually this there are some significant and helpful insights here that, that are going to be widely applicable, even if you're not necessarily interested in that particular area of history or not an expert on it. So, Sam, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very glad to join the show. Well, it's it's our privilege. And, and I want to start with something that's in the subtitle of this book. You say the federal theology of the English particular Baptists, etc. So, let's back up and, and try to address this question. What is federal theology? That's a good question to start because it's the title. Like you said, federal theology uh, is basically just covenant theology. Federal theology is covenant theology. Some people would make a distinction and they would say, well, there's, there's covenant theology because everyone has to acknowledge there's covenants in the Bible. Uh, But federal theology is sometimes used as a more specific version of covenant theology, where you see covenants working on a basis of representation, one person or a federal head covenants on behalf of other people. So we talk about a federal government sometimes, a government by representation. So federal theology, I guess you could say, is covenant theology, where we're assuming there are heads or representatives in those covenants. But to to answer the question perhaps a bit more broadly, covenant theology, federal theology, means you look at the scriptures and you say God has made covenants with man in the scriptures. He has revealed those things to us. What can we learn from those covenants? What do they mean for us today? What do they mean for, for the way that we live and the things that we believe? So just an easy example that most people, if not all people, would, would recognize is when we talk about all men dying in Adam— you know, the old humanity in Adam, represented by Adam. And when we talk about all men, a new humanity being made alive in Christ, we're talking about two representatives. And the scriptures teach us that we're actually talking about those two representatives in two different covenants. And so, as soon as we start talking about Adam and Christ, uh, death and life, we're already talking about covenant or federal theology. And this kind of covenant or federal theology in in the broadest possible sense, and we'll get into some of the distinctions because that's really the burden of your of your work, but in the broadest possible sense, this was the theology that we see in the English post-Reformation, what we would say the English Puritans. Or is that a fair assessment? I know there are differences there, but is that is that a fair way to put it? Yes, certainly. The the Puritans 
were reading the literature of the Continental Reformed, as most of them were educated in Cambridge and Oxford. And so the, the literature and theology of the Reformation back in the 16th century is pretty well established and developed, although still developing, in the early 17th century in the Puritan movement. So, so yes, covenant theology with its nuances and differences was most certainly present in the Puritan context of the early 17th century. Sam, with regard to your own study, you're looking at a particular, no pun intended, slice of the 17th century, the particular Baptists, or maybe we might say Calvinistic Baptists, but particular Baptists. Uh, and you're, you're looking at some of the distinctive features of federal theology as they held it. Maybe just a couple comments, and then you can get into some of the particulars. I think sometimes it's easy for us to think that covenant theology is the unique preserve of a Reformed Pado-Baptist tradition. And certainly they dominate the field of literature, uh, both in the 17th century and now, uh, with regard to uh, covenant theology. Where do the particular Baptists fit into that picture in the 17th century? Um, and what makes their particular approach to federal theology the same and perhaps distinct from what was going on around them? Well, I think we'll need a lot of chapters to get through that. <laughs> well, thankfully, you've Put supplied it. a lot of chapters. <laughs> Summarize your book in two yes. sentences or less. Certainly. Um, let's, let's put it this way. There's an underlying unity that I see in Reformed Covenant theology that the particular Baptists share. And that is the, the law gospel distinction, you know, works and grace, Adam and Christ, uh, distinguished in the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. All, all die in Adam, all the new humanity are alive in Christ with eternal life. And you'll find that throughout the Reformed writers, however much they themselves may have diversity, and you'll find that among the particular Baptists, that um, the law and the gospel, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are a shared common foundation that the particular Baptists enjoy with the broader Reformed tradition. And so, in order to situate them within that tradition, uh, you need to understand a little bit of the diversity of Pado-Baptist Reformed theology as well, because the particular Baptists really grow out of one of the branches, one of the large branches of Pado-Baptist Reformed theology. And if you read that literature, you'll find that in authors such as Casper Alevion and John Cameron, uh, they were advocating a view that was in certain particular ways, a bit different than, say, John Calvin would have uh, articulated covenant theology, to where they would see the Mosaic covenant as being distinct from the covenant of grace, while still subserving the covenant of grace and making known the covenant of grace, pointing and pushing Israel to Jesus Christ. And so, the particular Baptists really grow on that branch of the tree where they would say that the same things that uh, Alevian and Cameron and many others, I could give you a list of those things that many others would say, the same things that they would say about the Mosaic Covenant, the particular Baptists said, you know, these things are also true of the Abrahamic Covenant. And so they would say the Abrahamic Covenant is also a national covenant. It is also a covenant that depends on the obedience of individuals. Uh, it is something that prepares Israel and the world for Christ and points and pushes Israel and the world to Christ. And yet it, it is distinct from 
the covenant of grace. So what I'm trying to say is that they share the underlying foundation of works and grace and the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, the law and the gospel, but they grow off of a branch of reformed covenant theology that was willing to see in the old Testament national covenants distinct from the covenant of grace that were typological or, or, um, bringing along redemptive history towards the covenant of grace, not distinct and separate and, and in some way moving in a different direction. But there were those among the Pado Baptists who were willing to see those covenants in the old Testament working with the covenant of grace, though being distinct from it. And the particular Baptists grow, grow out of that. So that was a long, a long answer. So, Sorry. So no, that, that's, that's helpful. So they're already on a particular branch to use your imagery. Let's say they're on this Cameron branch and then how do they develop that or take that in a different direction that is uh, distinct and, and distinctively Baptist? Yes, that's a good question. So to extend the branch a little bit, uh, from Cameron, John Cameron's theology, well, his federal theology, I should say, uh, appears heavily in the Congregationalists. So Bolton translates Cameron's work and reprints it and says, this is the resolver to all of these questions. Uh, you see Cameron's theology in Jeremiah Burroughs. Goodwin quotes him. Owen very much has just about the same model as Cameron on these points. And the particular Baptists, many of that first generation of them, were the friends of colleagues of were in among the congregationalists. In fact, Matt Bingham has argued very persuasively that there were no particular Baptists in the 1630s and 40s. There were Baptistic congregationalists. Hmm. So that name is is significant and I think answers your question. What made the Baptistic congregationalists distinct from the congregationalists? And it, it comes back to that view of the Abrahamic covenant where you'll get in Bolton and Burroughs and Goodwin and Owen, this idea that the Mosaic covenant is something other than the covenant of grace, but it's the Baptistic congregationalists or what we usually call particular Baptists who say these things also apply to the Abrahamic covenant. And that was a move. That was a belief that really made the difference between the particular Baptists and uh, their reformed Paedo-Baptist brethren, whether they were Congregationalist or Presbyterian, etc. So it's really that view of the Abrahamic covenant, that it is a national covenant based on obedience, uh, revealing the covenant of grace, but being distinct from it. Those kinds of views, that's where the branch splits then, or some would say that's where the branch gets cut off <laughs> okay. and they and they fall from the tree, you know, but that's really like how, how united they are. And then that's where the difference occurs, whether that's a, a branching again or a cutting off, I'll, I'll leave the others to make up their own minds. Is that their covenantal basis though, for trying to rule out, say, um, a physiological genealogy principle when it comes to covenant membership? Is that their way of doing it? Was there this sense that if we say the Abrahamic is still the covenant of grace, then the covenant of grace would then end up including a kind of, uh, to you and your children in the physiological sense, principle? Or what drives it here? Is their view of baptism driving their interpretation of covenant, do you think? Maybe this is just your own judgment, or is it the other way around? You'd really have to go author by author. Um, and that was one of the difficult parts of, of doing a work like this is that it's very difficult to sum up their arguments into they said this or they said that right. because each one kind of does their own thing. But to try to sum it up as much as possible, 
prior to the particular Baptists even existing, uh, you have a very strong law gospel distinction from Luther onward, where this controls many people's understanding of the covenants and where they see commands, they say, okay, law and where they see promises, they say, okay, gospel. And so the particular Baptists, one of the main reasons that they would say that, that they would look at the Abrahamic covenant and, and be willing to call it a covenant based on obedience is the threat of disinheritance in Genesis 17, when the command of circumcision is disobeyed. And they would say, if, if this covenant threatens disinheritance for disobedience to a positive law, like circumcision, then this is, this is the same kind of arrangement as do not touch the tree, do not touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a positive law and obedience to that positive law triggers curses. They would say, okay, that's, that's the same thing. So they're using that kind of law gospel razor to look at this and say, it's one thing and look at another thing and say, it's the other thing. And that was often driving why they distinguished between the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant of grace uh, as strongly as they did. And so did their covenant theology drive their theology of baptism or the other way around? I, I don't know if that's a fair question to mm. ask because it, it seems to be rather all things at once, because what we haven't discussed is that at the same time in their context, the Puritan context, you know, in the early 17th century, there's just one church in England. It's just the church of England. Mm. And then you get sects and groups beginning to break off from the church of England for various reasons and various convictions. And the congregationalists who begin to separate from the church of England in this Puritan context, why are these people separating? They're often separating because they're saying the word of God does not support the practices of the church of England. The word of God does not support the practices of the church of England. You get uh, university students thinking these things through, you get parish priests who every Sunday are administering the, the Lord's Supper to everyone in their parish, and they're starting to think, this isn't right. And then some of them begin to think, well, what about baptism? And as they administer baptism to the infants in their parish, they begin to think, is this right? And so it's not that they came to a credo-baptist conviction and then tried to find a theology to justify it. There was a general re-examination of theology already happening in the universities and parish churches and different priests came to different convictions based on their study of the matters and covenant theology was just one part of what led to, to things such as this but if you're already considering limiting the sacrament of the lord's supper to the faithful which many priests were insisting on at that time it's mm -hmm. not a big intellectual jump in fact it's really just a step to say well what about baptism for whom is this sacrament to whom should it be administered so yes their covenant theology did play an important role in their theology of baptism but they were reconsidering baptism for other reasons at the same time as well Sam, that's helpful, painting a picture of the kinds of examination that was going on at that time and, and the kinds of questions that they were asking. How acrimonious were these debates? I mean, in retrospect, when we talk about branches of branches, that sounds relatively straightforward. But what was the cost for some of these people who were reconsidering some of, some of these significant doctrines? That's a good question, but it really depends on where you put the chronology slider. As you, as you slide the time into different, even sets of five years or so in the 17th century, you'll get different answers. So during Laud's time, during Archbishop Laud, 
if you reject uh, the bishops, the episcopacy, uh, if you reject such things, there are great consequences for you. You could not just lose your, your living and your, your place and source of income, but you could also be put in, in prison or you could be exiled, depending on how strongly you opposed the established church. If you slide up the chronology to the time of the Westminster Assembly, the Westminster Assembly was was attempting to pass legislation. The Blasphemy Act was passed, but they were attempting to pass legislation to suppress uh, what they called Anabaptism and other things that they saw as antithetical to the church that they were trying to reform and establish in England. So, what did it cost to come to these views? It it often cost the loss of one's ministry, at least a ministry that would provide for you and had a uh, was sort of established. It often cost the loss of of friendships. It, it it would have made you to some degree a social outcast because you're departing from a national social institution and long held beliefs and. It costs more or less for different people at different times. I guess I'm just struggling to give a straightforward answer. No, I think it's to, helpful. You're, you're, yeah. you're, you're showing it. There's you're, not, su- you're such a historian, Sam. <laughs> no, no, but it is, it is helpful to recognize that these things don't happen in a vacuum. At all points, it was somewhat costly. And at different points, it was, I mean, these, these aren't things they're doing just in an isolated ivory tower kind of environment. Correct. Yes. Uh, Benjamin Cox, for example, we'll use him. As an example, just to real quick, in in the early 1640s, he was supposed to debate Richard Baxter about baptism, uh, and the debate never took place because he was imprisoned for for preaching in the town where he was preaching, and so he he's put in prison for his views as a, a Baptist. And then later, a few years later, he helped with the second edition of the first London Baptist Confession, so the 1646 london baptist confession he and another particular baptist stood outside of parliament to hand out copies of it it was a pamphlet so they could just hand them out or or as a pamphlet i mean just unbound its its papers and they were summoned before the committee uh and they were told that all of those confessions had to be burned and suppressed (laughs) uh and so they got in trouble again you know it's it's different different time periods and different costs and consequences for for their involvement. That's just one quick example. Sam, if um, if any of our listeners are interested in sort of getting a handle on some of these 17th century distinctives and how they might be applicatory to one's uh, theology and interpretation of scripture today, in addition to your book, which is primarily um, historical in focus, what uh, commendation would you make or what might they, what might they pursue to explore uh, more of these themes? If you want to get a really good background on covenant theology leading up to the Westminster Assembly, then Andrew Woolsey's Unity and Continuity and Covenantal Thought would definitely be the place to go. It's a, a large work that takes a lot of concentration, but it, it's just the best thing that you could read on that subject. Uh, in terms of particular Baptists, um, there really is scant secondary no, literature. You're, you're a pioneer in this uh, historical spade work, I know. Matt Bingham has an article on John Spilsbury's covenant theology. Pascal Deneau has written a book on particular Baptist covenant theology. I think that the book on Anthony Burgess by uh, Caselli, Andrew Caselli, 
right. that's quite good. Divine rule maintained, I believe. It's helpful on understanding some of it. It's not quite so focused on covenant theology, but it certainly touches on many of those questions. Those are just a few suggestions. Thanks for that. And thank, thanks for your time uh, pointing us to some of these historical matters of current relevance. Certainly. I'm glad to. Yeah, Sam, thank you very much. Also, just a, a reminder to our listeners, the book that we've been discussing uh, is from Shadow to Substance, The Federal Theology of the English Particular Baptists. So, Sam, thanks for your time today. Thank you. James, it was a joy to have Sam on. He's so clear and uh, so approachable and, and humble, and yet his scholarship is outstanding. So that was a joy. But I wanted to ask you, what's the value in books like this? So, so he had a particular question he was answering, but right. we have a lot of listeners in a lot of different places in life, and the Federal Theology of English Particular Baptist, 1642 to 1704, is, is a narrow topic. So, sure. why, why is it worth our time to pursue questions like this and even books like this? I think, well, if I can connect it to something we've talked about before uh, in other contexts um, of, of uh, David Wells' concern about the loss of historical sensibility, uh, doctrinal knowledge, and exegetical rigor in the modern evangelical church, there's a sense in which modern Christians, modern evangelicals don't know where they've come from, and they haven't spent time with their forebearers in that kind of wrestling process of understanding the message of Scripture. A book like this is, is really Sam analyzing pastors of years gone by who are wrestling with the with the coherency of the message of Scripture itself and how to put uh, the parts together in the most biblically faithful way. And I have to think that that's, while this seems like a narrow slice of the pie, that really is the concern of anyone who handles the Scriptures. And, and even those who may not be preachers or teachers, but those who read the Scriptures and want to understand the unity and diversity of its message, a book like this really is a window into how men in years gone by have have wrestled over decades with that question. And like Sam says, it's not this homogenous right. uh, thing where you can say they believed and it's, you know, but it really is a good, it re I think it's a good snapshot into the kind of wrestling and intellectual heavy lifting that is required of someone who's going to handle the word. These were not, I mean, Sam isn't studying university professors. Sam is studying pastors right. who are trying to coherently characterize the message of scripture, particularly as it comes to our connection to Adam and to Christ. And I would say an exercise uh, working through this kind of work actually can teach the modern pastor or layperson even the the discipline that it takes and, what, and the types of questions that need to be answered and wrestled with to come to those conclusions. Yeah, I remember when we had uh, Terry Johnson on the podcast and he was talking about the influences on his study of the attributes of God. Mm -hmm. And he said it was like they were from a different planet. And there is right. a sense in which you, you pick up some of these guys and you feel like you are in a different world, not, not in just in terms of the language or anything like that, but the depth of their examination and reflection, the seriousness uh, with which they took their pastoral duties. And as you said, these are working pastors with families and challenges that go beyond what most of us will ever experience and yet they devoted themselves to this kind of work and they have they have a calling to handle the scriptures and to proclaim the whole counsel of god and of certainly an, a right understanding of covenant 
is a centerpiece of being able to to make that proclamation in a way that is situated within the single revelation of, of Scripture. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. We love hearing from our listeners. If you have a suggestion, a question, a comment, please email us. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. And if you have anyone who you think might benefit from this podcast, please pass it along to them. If you're able to make a donation, you can do that at AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org. And if you've been interested in some of the topics we've covered today, we'd like to offer you the opportunity to win a free copy of Recovering a Covenantal Heritage, Essays in Baptist Covenant Theology. And some of the essays in there relate directly to some of the things that Sam was uh, talking about today. As always, we thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.